this is one of the major defeaters against Christianity. And what I mean by a defeater is like this sort of common cultural view that isn't really examined, right? People don't really delve into it and, and see that if it's true, but it's sort of an excuse that people can sort of resort to and dismiss Christianity and say, well, nobody believes that, you know, the Bible is actually from God, and therefore, why should I believe in Christianity, right? And so I think we absolutely have to address it. And I wanted to begin by um, giving you two quotes, because I think this sort of uh, view that the Bible is entirely a product of, of human imagination is really pervasive, not only on a, cult, a popular cultural level, but um, in academia as well. So the first quote is from the Da Vinci Code. Uh, I don't know if you, uh, yeah, do you have a handout? The first quote is from the Da Vinci Code. Uh, and this is, if you've read the book, or if you've seen the movie, um, it's that scene where, uh, what is what is her name? Sophie and Langdon, right? They're, they're on the chase, and they meet the uh, grail specialist, um, T-Bean, right? And he gives the big reveal, and you're supposed to be like, uh -huh, right? And so this is the big reveal, right? The Bible is a product of man, not of God. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved, right? So the Bible has changed and, 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 and evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, and yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John among them. The Bible as we know it today was collated by the pagan Roman Emperor Constantine the Great. Constantine needed, the strength, uh, needed to strengthen the new Christian tradition and held a famous ecumenical gathering known as the Council of Nicaea. At Nicaea, Constantine commissioned and financed a new Bible which omitted those Gospels that spoke of Christ's <coughs> human traits and embellished those Gospels that made him godlike. The earlier Gospels were out outlawed, gathered up, and burned. These scrolls highlight glaring historical discrepancies and fabrications clearly confirming that the modern Bible was compiled and edited by men who possessed a political agenda to promote the divinity of the man Jesus Christ and use his influence to solidify their own power base. Right? And so, oh, the whole Bible, Christianity, is just this massive historical scam and fraud. Um, not just at the popular level, but we see this as well in academia. So there's a man named Bart Ehrman who actually used to be uh, an evangelical Christian, but then he converted to atheism, I think like 10 years ago, and he's a professor at the uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and he turns out books regularly. He's um, constantly featured on NPR, um, and uh, one of his books called, is called Lost Christianities, notice it's in the plural, The Battles for Scripture and the Faiths We Never Knew. So let me read this quote. This is from his introduction. Someone decided that four of these early Gospels and no others should be accepted as part of the canon. Right? We'll talk about that shortly. The collection of sacred books of Scripture. But how did they make their decisions? When? <coughs> how can we be sure they were right? And whatever happened to the other books? Only 27 of the early Christian books were finally included in, quote-unquote, the canon. Other books came to be rejected, scorned, maligned, attacked, burned, all but forgotten, lost. The truth is that one form of Christianity emerged as victorious in the conflicts of the 2nd and 3rd centuries. 
this one form of Christianity decided what was the correct Christian perspective. It decided who could exercise authority over Christian belief and practice, and it determined what forms of Christianity would be marginalized, set aside, destroyed. It also decided which books to canonize into scripture and which books to set aside as heretical, false, teaching false ideas. Can I have you go to the sanctuary and the, the side door of the cafeteria that you close it? Close it. Yeah. All right, so uh, if you follow the argument, right, basically the Bible as we have it, you guys can just pull out some chairs. The Bible as we have it is really a product of these uh, maneuverings and struggles and fights, and each camp had their own like books, like propaganda, right? And they're each presenting their own vision of Jesus, and they're duking it out on the streets. There were multiple forms of Christianity, and then one eventually emerged, right? Basically, Constantine the Great says, "You, you're the winners. You guys are the official Christianity." And then the victorious Christians said, "Aha!" And then they destroyed and burned all the other rival books, books with equal weight that tell a completely different story. And so the Bible, as we have it, is not reliable, right? So that's the story. And how do I respond to that, right? So first let me explain what the canon is, right? So this is canon with one N. Two ends is a big gun, a piece of artillery. Uh, one end, or actually this has two ends, so three ends is the big gun. Two ends it comes from the Greek word which means rule. It actually literally means rod, but it means uh, rule. And it's basically an authoritative list of the books of the Bible, right? Let me just... I can never know how to spell authoritative. Where's my ah? Oh. It's an authoritative list of books, and um, which which we would call the scriptures, right? So it's the word of God, and the reason why there has to be a list, right, is because as you know, the New Testament consists of twenty-seven books. Right? Unlike, for example, the Quran or the Book of Mormon, which has a single author, a single unified text, the New Testament, and we'll talk about the Old Testament shortly, uh, the New Testament is 27 books, each of them written independently right, uh, by multiple different authors. And so how do we get this idea that there's this New Testament where somebody basically got all of these 27 scrolls and bound them together and said that is the Bible, right? So when did that happen? And, you know, because if you look in your modern Bible, right? So I'm going to borrow Nate's Bible. If you look in the modern Bible, if you turn to the beginning, there's something that's actually not in the Bible, which is this. What is this called? Table of Contents. Where is the Table of Contents in your Bible? Huh? At the beginning? <laughs> no! There is no table of contents. There is no list. These 27 books comprise the New Testament. These 39 books comprise the uh, Old Testament, right? So where do we get this idea that there's a table of contents? Um, and actually, the earliest list that uh, we have comes from the uh, uh, middle of the 2nd century, 
called the Moratorium Fragment. It's the very first list that we've ever found where it lists the books of the New Testament. The problem with that list is that it's missing several of the books, right? So it's missing uh, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, and it lists certain books that we do not consider part of the canon today, right? So it lists, for example, the Shepherd of Hermes, which is kind of a, a pastoral, um, it's kind of like a devotional book, right, from the 2nd century. And it's not until the 4th century, so the middle of the 300s, um, that we have a widespread consensus among all the Christians, which have multiple lists, uh, canon lists, and they all match up and they all agree. So previous to the middle of the fourth century, you had a bunch of different lists, but they disagreed with each other. <coughs> some would include Romans, I mean, sorry, some would include, uh, exclude Hebrews, some would, wouldn't include Revelation, some wouldn't include James. So it isn't until the middle of the 300s that all of the lists agree. And we have our author authoritative list of 27 books, which has not changed since then, right? And so the critics say, aha, so what happened was the 4th century created the Bible, right? So let me just, so where do we get this Bible? Actually, I'm going to keep doing this, so let me just write it on the side. So where do we get the Bible? to say the foundation of the Bible is the struggles of the 4th century. Right? And if it came out of the 4th century, out of the theological squabbles of the 1st century, in which each camp had their own set of books, their own set of propaganda, then the criticism, if that criticism is true, then the Bible is really the result of man and not of God. So does anyone, does everyone sort of understand the dilemma that we're presented here, right? And, and there are a couple more questions about the canon that we should ask, which is first, which another question is, how do we know it's closed? What do I mean by closed? You don't add to it. Huh? You don't add to it, that's right. Where in the Bible does it say, don't, 27 books is the end? This is determinist, huh? Revelation? Where? Don't add or take away from this. From this book. So it says mm -hmm. don't add to this book. Why not a 28th book? Where in the New Testament does it say no 28th book? First of all, it doesn't even say 27. Right? But it doesn't say, where does it say it stop with 27? There is no verse. So how do we know it's closed? Right? How do we not know that as the Quran says or as the Book of Mormon says, Revelation continues? So we have all kinds of problems, right, with the canon. And I think part of uh, uh, the problem here is that the church has done a horrendous job of explaining the canon, explaining uh, the human origins of the Bible, because we have this sort of myth, right, that the Bible came in pristine form like this, right? It floated down from heaven, right? right? With a table of contents, right? But that's simply not true. And because, and so when people actually find out the messy history, um, and we'll talk about how do we account for that history. But when people find out the messy history, then they get scandalized, like, oh my goodness, right? And they have this crisis of faith. So that's my uh, uh, um, goal, is to give you a solid foundation for understanding, trusting that this is in fact from God, okay? Not a part of the human beings. Okay. 
Any uh, quick questions about the history that I've laid out so far? All right, good. So I think this is very important because it, it plants a fundamental doubt in our minds. What was the very first sort of uh, uh, evil, intrusion of evil into the world? It was Satan whispering into Eve's ear, what did God really say? Right? That I think that's so profound and so fascinating that that is a foundational act of rebellion against God, which is to plant doubt on the Bible. Is the Bible really God speaking to us, right? And so the Bible here is not incidental to the Christian faith, but it's foundational. And even within the Bible itself, you have the highest possible view there is for the scriptures. So, for example, a very important verse, Deuteronomy 8.3, right? Man does not live on uh, bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice that Jesus quotes that when he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness, right? So what does that mean? It means, it's an astonishing statement, that more than food, more than water, more than basic biological sustenance, you need God's word. You need to hear from God. You need God's revelation, right? And so it's foundational. And let me just heighten the problem before I try to answer it which is that Christianity is uniquely dependent on the Bible. And so, first of all, Jesus held the highest possible view of the Bible, right? So, for example, uh, Mark chapter 12. We actually looked at this a few weeks ago. Remember, this is uh, Jesus debating with the Sadducees about, is there a resurrection? And this is Jesus' response. I think it's amazing. Right? He says, right, and he's quoting from Exodus 3 6, right? And that's the passage where uh, God uh, speaks with Moses through the burning bush, right? And, and then he quotes Exodus 3 6, where it says, where God says, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So Jesus quotes scripture, and then he provides the counter, the rebuttal argument, right? He says, He is not God of the dead, but of the living. So he says to the Sadducees, You are wrong. Now, what's remarkable is that the entire argument rests not only on a single word, but on the tense of that word. Because, he, because Jesus says, right, God was not, God, it doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. Because if I was the God of Abraham, that means that Abraham is now dead and non-existent. But I am, in the present, the God of Abraham, which means he's alive today, he's with me. And so on the tenth of a single verb, Jesus rests this huge doctrine that there is a resurrection. Right? And so what that means is that even the smallest detail of Scripture is authoritative. And I think that puts to rest this whole idea that what's important in the Bible is the general gist, the, the sort of the thrust of the Bible. It doesn't matter if the Bible has errors or that, you know, there are factual incorrections um, or, or that, you know, you can't completely trust all the details as long as you have the general storyline, right? Jesus didn't look at the Bible that way. He thought the Bible was so authoritative, so uh, high and lofty that even the tense of a verb determines doctrine, right? He says in the Sermon on the Mount, not an iota, not a dot. I like the uh, King James version, right? Not a jot or tittle of uh, will pass from the law until all is all is accomplished, right? So he's basically saying, not even a dot, not even a stroke of the law of God, of the word of God, 
It's all authoritative, right? Jesus was constantly quoting scripture. Uh, one of my favorite examples is that if you look on the cross, um, he he everything he says on the cross is a direct quotation of the Old Testament. I think that's really remarkable because it's not like Jesus is hanging there on the cross and saying, you know, I wonder what piece of scripture would really capture this moment. No, right? He was so soaked in scripture. He was scripture so dominated his life that when he was screaming in agony, when he was being tortured, he didn't even have time to think. Just scripture just came out, right? Uh, Jesus was constantly letting scripture dictate his life. Uh, We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, uh, some people say, and I actually think this is really true, that every single thing Jesus ever said was either a direct quotation of the Old Testament or an allusion or an indirect reference to the Old Testament. So everything he said, he's not saying necessarily original things. He's constantly just speaking scripture, right? He's constantly letting scripture dictate his life. So for example, in the triumphal entry, right, he, he tells his disciples, go get the cult of a donkey. Why a cult of a donkey? Because it says, Zechariah 9, 9, right, that, uh, to fulfill that promise, that, that prophecy. So he's saying, we have to do this. We have to do this because it says in the scriptures, he's constantly letting scripture order his life. And then in John 10, 35, Jesus makes this incredibly strong statement. He says, scripture cannot be broken. Every single word of scripture is true and reliable. It cannot be dismissed. Right? So Jesus held the highest possible view. The second point I would also make is that history completely matters in Christianity. Christianity is not an ethical code. It's not, a, it's not a, a way of life. So in that sense, it's very much different than, say, Buddhism. It doesn't really matter if Buddha lived or died. Um, it's his teachings that matter, right? Um, I could even argue, arguably, it doesn't really even matter whether the Prophet Muhammad really lived or died or whether he actually captured Medina and Mecca because it's really an ethical religion. It's a way of life. It's the five pillars. This is, I think, even true with uh, uh, Mormonism. It doesn't really matter what Joseph Smith actually lived, it's the teachings. But Christianity is not an ethical religion. It's a historical claim, right, that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and resurrected, and therefore Christianity is what is called historically falsifiable, meaning if you can show that the history is incorrect, Christianity completely falls down. It is untrue. It completely depends on historical veracity. Unlike any other religion, in my opinion, Christianity is uniquely dependent on Uh, historical facts. So, for example, Acts chapter 10. This is Peter talking to Cornelius and his entire household. I think this is a remarkable statement. And you see this all over. For example, you see this at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. You see this at the uh, prologue of Luke chapter 1. The the apostles are constantly saying we were eyewitnesses. We touched. We saw. We we, we, we ate. And we, we, we witnessed all of these events, right? So Peter says, Verse 39, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. That's interesting. By the way, why? I mean, why call the cross a tree? That's a very weird way to call the cross. Why 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 does Peter call it the tree a, I mean the cross a tree? Because there's an old testament uh, verse that talks about whoever's hung from a tree. That's right, curses everyone who's hung on a tree. So notice, Scripture is so important that it, it 
completely guide the structures the way the early Christians saw everything, right? So he was hung. So Jesus was hung on a tree, right? Crucified, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. And that's the answer. And we're going to get back to it later. But this, that, that's basically the answer. How we can trust the Bible, okay? But to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So the veracity of the New Testament rests very much on the strength of the eyewitness accounts. If the history is wrong, then the Bible collapses, Christianity collapses. Let me even make that even stronger. If you could find some errors, but the main story is still correct, I still, I, I still think Christianity falls down. Because the, 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 the eyewitnesses are continually saying, we saw this, it happened. This is the way it, 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 all the events laid out. Okay? So we are in a major pickle. Because if the Bible is shoddy history... Um, or even if we can we can show that maybe one of these books are incorrect, um, then it completely, it, it very strongly undermines Christianity. All right, so any questions before I move on to the next point? All right, so let's go on to the false solutions. So the first false solution is that we can trust the Roman Catholic Church who determined the canon. So uh, let me just keep going with this graph. Right? So basically, the modern skeptical view is that the Bible, foundation of the Bible is the fourth century, the scrolls of the fourth century, right? And our Roman Catholic friends would say, yes, that is very unreliable. The the real foundation of the Bible is the church. And uh, 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 the Bible is not left to the vagaries and chants and squabbles of, of this time period, but that God had vested the church, specifically the Roman Catholic Church, um, the authority to sift through all the competing books, right? Because there were different books that didn't make it into the New Testament. So these are out, these are in, um, and and uh, uh, therefore we know, that's how we know that this the canon is right, because God entrusted the church to choose the canon for us. Uh, after all, the church existed before the writing of the New Testament, and so the, the Bible is founded on the church. Uh, two very quick problems with that. Holy smokes. All right, I'm going to have to go super fast. Okay. Um, uh, the two problems with that, which is, first of all, this requires an infallible church. And we know, in fact, that the church is very fallible. It is deeply flawed. So you're asking us to trust this this thing, which makes mistakes all the time. And not only that, but where did we get the idea that, that, that God said, that Jesus said, yes, you church, you're going to decide the canon. You're going to determine. You're going to sift through all the writings and determine which is the word of God. We don't have any evidence for that. The second problem is that human beings then, because the church are people, right? That's me for that. Uh, that means the people decide what's the Bible. So rather than scripture defining us, we're defining scripture. And I think that really opens us up to the charge that we're choosing what we want God to be. That we're making God in our own image. 
this book, right, because that's basically what Dan Brown said, right? Dan Brown says, you know, this book, it matches my view of Jesus, so yes, it's in. This book doesn't match my view of Jesus, down, right? So that's a very terrible foundation. The number two foundation um, is a burning in the bosom. I don't know if you've ever had uh, Mormon friends. I, I remember very clearly, I had this uh, dear Mormon friend uh, in high school. We would argue all the time. And he would say to me, you know, uh, the Book of Mormon is from God. I'd say, how do you know that? He would say, just read it. And when you read it, you're going to get, and this is the first time I heard it, you're going to get a burning in the bosom, which is that you're going to get this feeling of heat, right? And you're going to feel this deep sense of peace and calm and joy when you read the Book of Mormon. Well, I actually did read the Book of Mormon. I did not get a burning in the bosom. Um, But the problem with this, and so let me just draw this out. It's not just Mormons who. <laughs> the problem then is that it's really a subjective way to establish the Bible, right? Um, because it has nothing to do with the text itself. It has everything to do with your validating feelings. And therefore, God's word depends on moods and feelings. And feelings can also validate different texts, right? Including the Book of Mormon. People do indeed get a burning in the bosom sometimes when they read the Book of Mormon, right? And we would say the Book of Mormon is not the Word of God. So, uh, so I'm going to skip this next section. So then what's the answer, okay? So it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. Um, and let me just say that the answer I'm about to give you uh, is really going to take me three weeks. Okay, so I feel like if, if, if you only come to this, this week's class, you're not getting the full explanation. So please come back two more weeks. Uh, have it too. <laughs> and, uh, and the second thing is that what I'm about to say is I'm really laying down the foundations. And we're going to get a little bit into sort of a philosophical um, presentation. And it's very necessary. We have to do this but it's not very satisfying. Um, like the answer I'm going to give you today, you're not going to say, hmm, I'm going to, I'm going to use that. Um, at least that's my perspective. Right? Maybe Andrew will like, mm, Andrew will be the only one who mm, I like it. <laughs> um, the best answer that I could give, and I'm going to talk about this later, is that the foundation of the Bible, the reason why we can trust the Bible is because Jesus substantiates and authorizes the Bible. But the objection that people immediately are going to have is, yes, but everything you know about Jesus is from the Bible. Well, yes. So this is why this is why we have to get to this answer. And the answer is, if you can turn to the next page, the back side, we can trust the Bible because the Bible attests to itself. What that means is the Bible provides its own testimony. Right? Like, if, 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 we, if, if there was a trial... How do we know the Bible is from God? The Bible would call the Bible to the stand as a witness. It is self-authenticating. Does that make sense? We see this all over the Bible, okay? So, for example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Actually, let me have Chelsea read it for us. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God... Wait, wait, let me just stop right there, right? That's an amazing statement. We were like, wow! Because what is Paul saying? He's saying that my preaching and my writings is not just my opinion, it's the word of God. This is what God is saying, right? He, he, that's what he tells us, right? 
that when you received the word of God, go on, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in your in you believers. There you go. That's the answer. It's not the work of men. It's from God. But says who? Says First Thessalonians chapter two verse thirteen, right? So the Bible's testifying to itself. Or how about Second uh, Timothy three sixteen? Is Paul says all Scripture is breathed out by God. Scripture here meaning not just the Old Testament Scriptures, but the emerging New Testament Scriptures is breathed out right from the very mouth of God. This is where we get the word inspiration. Inspired simply means that human beings wrote the uh, our course, authored the books of the Bible, right? That the Holy Spirit was breathing out that they were using these human authors so that it was the very words of God. Um, so it's divine authorship. And so the Bible never establishes its credentials by appealing to any outside authority, but always on its own authority. And so the Bible is not built on any foundation except for itself. And so let me write the final box, which is that the foundation of the Bible, and this is the answer, is the Bible. That's how we know it's the Word of God. Kevin Kevin is looking very flummoxed and confused because he is thinking, wait a minute, you can't do that because that is circular reasoning. Right? Circular reasoning is what? When you assume what you're trying to prove. Right? That's also called begging the question. Right? Which is, in order to have a conclusion, right? So there's normal logic, right? The normal logic is premise, <clears throat> and then conclusion, right? You can't smuggle in the premise into the conclusion, right? Because that's circular logic. But to say the Bible is the word of God because the Bible says it's the word of God, people would say, and Kevin saying yes, right? Is that circular reasoning? Um, and the example that I would give, and, and, and I want to spend some time unpacking this, okay? So, because this can be a little bit confusing. Um, the example I would give is, imagine that you go to the doctor, and you're sitting in the waiting room, and your doctor comes in and says, I have really bad news for you. You have pneumonia. And you respond, that's impossible. I can't be sick, because I'm a healthy person. Right? Um, and, and that is a, a very good example, in my opinion, of circular reasons. Let me just write this down, okay? I'm not sick. Because I'm healthy. Okay? And if you make that argument, right, your doctor is going to say, <laughs> that's not a very good argument. And the reason is because this premise, which is I'm healthy, is so unsubstantiated. In fact, all the evidence points to the fact that you're not healthy. Namely, that you're, you know, you're coughing, you're, you're, you're wheezing, right? You, the test results came back, uh, the lab results, right? And it shows that you have pneumonia. And so what this is saying, right? And the reason why you can't make a statement like this is because this is your what? What, what would you call this? Your mere opinion. Right, your personal opinion. And your personal opinion does not get to overthrow evidence or test results, right? It doesn't have a greater weight than than what the doctor is saying. So a much better argument than saying, I'm not sick because I'm healthy, 
is to say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. I can't possibly be sick because I just came from another doctor visit. I don't know why I'm at two doctors, but I just came from another doctor, and he just gave me a clean bill of health. And then the doctor was like, oh, well, maybe I need to check my test results, right? That's a much stronger statement because you're appealing to a higher authority. What are you appealing to? You're appealing to a medical expert. You're appealing to some sort of physical exam, right? But you can't just say I'm healthy because I say so, right? So here's the problem, which is that if we were to say the Bible is God's word because... What would you put there? And you have to appeal to a higher authority than merely the opinion of the Bible. What, what has greater weight than God's own, God's own words? Right? So, very well-meaning Christians would say, okay, well, we can put right here because, you know, it matches the historical records that we have. But actually, that's always up to contention. There's people arguing all the time about what actually happened in history. And so it ends up happening that it's like a consensus of what the experts say, right? And, and so this is what ends up happening, right? A lot of well-meaning Christians basically say the Bible is the word of God because you have the consensus of experts. Right, historical, uh, it, it matches the historical record, or um, um, what is it? Uh, 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 it describes the spiritual state of man really well, or something. But this looks an awful lot like this, doesn't it? Right? Basically, it's a it's a vote almost. It's a consensus. It's it's basically popular opinion. And so uh, uh, this is why I think, and you know, it doesn't have to be extras because it could just be like everyone around me. I went to a Christian school. Everyone around me said that the Bible is the word of God. This is a very, very flimsy, flimsy foundation because eventually you're going to go to college. And then when you go to college, they're going to bring in a whole raft of other experts who will uh, challenge the authority of the Bible, and then your faith will fall apart. I've seen this happen a lot of times, actually. So we can't do this. And But then... What do we do about this problem, which is the problem of circular reasoning? And the answer here is that circular logic, and this is what I meant where it's not very satisfying, okay? So wait till next week because we'll talk about other more satisfying explanations. But um, circular reasoning is not always bad, and the exception is that Circular reasoning is valid for ultimate foundational realities. Okay? So, let me just explain. This is the exception, which is ultimate realities. Okay? So, let me give you an example. How do you prove that logic is true? How do we know that logic <coughs> is accurate, that it's a reflection of reality and that it's not wrong. You have to use logic to prove logic. 
right? So what that ends up looking like is this. Right? And what you what you do is you don't start by putting logic on the examination table, poking it and prodding it. How do you prove that logic is true? You don't. You assume logic, right? Logic is like a coat you put on, and you realize, hey, it works really well. Logic has never failed me. It's never contradicted. It actually works really well in scientific experimentation, in uh, discovery, in argumentation. And so that's how... The reason why is because logic is woven into the very fabric of reality. And you don't examine a foundational fabric of reality by appealing to a higher authority because it is the highest authority. Does that make sense? Wouldn't you say that the scientific experimentation and all the things that support logic in that context are what it's built on? But you're using logic to <coughs> do that. And yeah, I, I think that you're you're using logic to make predictions, and then you're testing them using various methods. All of that logic, though. And you still have to believe in the uniformity of nature. For we'll talk about that. that that's <laughs> a whole other issue. I thought about that as well, but then I but then I ran to the question of what is correct. <coughs> all right, I'm gonna cut it right here. All right. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> The, the, the other thing, and I want to just smuggle this in because this is always really fun for me. Uh, the other thing is, how can you trust your senses? Right? How do you not know right now you're in the matrix? Prove it to me. How do you not know? And in philosophy, it's called brain in the vat. How do you not know that your brain is not in a vat with little electrodes feeding it stimuli? Or my favorite version of this is solipsism. Has anyone heard of solipsism? You've heard of solipsism. I couldn't explain it as well. Solipsism is the philosophical view that you are the only being that exists in the universe, and everyone that you interact with is a figment of your imagination. This proves solipsism, that the people you're talking with are real, not just your, in your head. There's a joke that I really enjoy, which is, what do you do when you meet a solipsist? You treat them really well because when they die, you'll die too. <laughs> um, so how do you how do you disprove it? And the thing is, you can't. And hey, join us, thank you. Um, and what you do is you say, and if you take a philosophy class, you know this is the famous skepticism of Rene Descartes. So basically, you you can't adopt the radical skepticism that puts senses in in a question mark because then you can know nothing. So that's the proof. You, you have to trust your senses or else you can't know anything. And in fact, I think, a, a, which is, you know, um, circular. But in fact, I think the deeper explanation is there's a God who doesn't deceive you and there's a God who is logical. Right? But we'll talk about that. I mean, that's a whole other issue, right? So we must start by assuming the Bible is the word of God. So Mark 13, 31, which is actually from our passage today, preaching, Jesus says, heaven and earth will not pass away. But my words will not pass away. By the way, this is an incredible claim of divinity. No one can say my words will last longer than the stars in the universe, right? Only God can say that. And what Jesus is saying is that my words, and this is where this connects. My words have authority, have weight. That's how we know that the Bible is trustworthy. By the way, this argument that the Bible is the Bible because it says so doesn't work with any other kind of document. 
It is uniquely only the Bible can say that. No other book can say that. So you can't have a book that says, I am the U.S. Constitution. You can't just take it on its word. You have to say, well, there's you know, other historical ways to verify that you are, in fact, the Constitution of the United States. Or if there's a book that says, I am the, best, the world's best cookbook, right? Well, actually, there are many competing books that probably say that. There are other ways to authenticate that. But the Bible is the only book in the world which is authenticated by itself. Because only God can authenticate his own word. And if it's not God, and if you appeal to another authority, another foundation, then that is God. That is a higher being than God. And, and therefore, it has to be that God authenticates himself. Hebrews 6.13, amazing verse. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom he, to swear, he swore by himself. Right? Who can God swear on? He can't swear on anything other than himself because he himself is the foundational reality of all existence. And therefore, God testifies to himself. In other words, we must treat God's word like we treat God. We don't prove God exists. We receive and accept his reality. And then we realize everything fits, everything works out. And Anselm has this great statement. Anselm is a theologian from the uh, uh, 11th century. He, he said, faith seeking understanding. That's the Christian faith. I think it's a wonderful statement, which is, we don't start by probing and testing the Bible. You start by assuming that the Bible is the word of God. It's like a coat that you put on. And then you realize it fits. It works. It makes sense, right? And so, um, the argument I would make is that circular reasoning is bad if it were really a small circle. So if it was a tiny circle. But the argument that I'm going to make and the rest of the class, uh, whoops, and then the rest of the time I hope to prove it, is that the Bible's self-authenticating uh, statement is an enormous circle. And at various points, you can verify it with reality, with evidence. Right? So, for example, it matches the historical data. You know, there's a spiritual beauty to it. Uh, and then namely, that Jesus himself laid out very specifically instructions for the writing of the New Testament and that it is, in fact, 27 books for reasons that we'll explore in, uh, in Scripture next week. So it depends on the size of the circle that makes a self-authenticating statement reliable. Right? Just like logic, right? It's a huge circle because it checks with scientific data, it checks with uh, reality, with, with argumentation and things. Oh, I went much faster than I thought. Okay, so, panic for no reason. Um, so, let me just explain this, this, this argument, which I'm going to spell out, because this argument is, by the way, the same as this argument, okay? Which is that the reason why we can trust the Bible is because Jesus says so. Jesus authenticates it. Because you'll see that Jesus refers back to the Old Testament, and he always accepts it as the Word of God. And therefore, the whole of the Old Testament we can accept on the authority of Jesus. And then, Jesus tells his disciples to write the New Testament. And therefore, the New Testament is his authoritative words. And therefore, the whole of the Bible rests on the person, the life, the ministry of Jesus. His, his weight, the whole Bible depends on. Okay, so, any, any questions? Yes? Um, so, do we say that Jesus is... A higher authority than the Bible? No, Jesus. Bible? Well, so when I say the Bible, yeah. so it's a, a 
So this is, the Bible is the word of God. Jesus is the word of God himself yes. in flesh. So the word of God authorizes the word of God. So my words will never pass away, right? Um, unlike our words, right? My words are like the wind. <laughs> Just throw it up into the air, see it go. It has no weight. But Jesus' words, unique, because they're the very words of God. And they will last forever. They will outlast the stars. So um, he substantiates and authorizes the Bible because they are his words. Uh, I think this is the problem when you see the Bible, the red letter edition Bibles. I think it, it, it very subtly introduces a very bad idea, which is that the, my mom used to always tell me, I just read the red letters, right? Skip, skip the black parts. But the black parts, the red parts, they're all the same, which is that they're his words, right? Because he's instructed his disciples. So, so uh, if we're not saying Jesus has a higher weight than the Bible, we're saying that the word of God and Jesus himself has the same way because my words aren't even myself. Unlike human words. Human words throw away. Yes. Do, you, do you think that all uh, potential scriptural books should be tested in that same way the Bible is? So like the Quran is the testament to the Quran because it claims to be foundational the same way that... Yeah, so the Quran, the Quran also has a circular argument for itself. But here's where I said this big circle is important because it contradicts critically at the New Testament. Right? Because if you look at the New Testament, it's a closed canon. So at the 27th book, it ends. But the Quran says it continues. So it directly contradicts the New Testament. And it's interesting that if you actually study the Quran in Islam, what does it say about the New Testament? It says that it's corrupt. Right, that that it was originally written correctly, but it's been hopelessly lost in corruption and changes and revisions, and therefore you can't really trust it. That's why the Quran is a much better revelation. But that directly contradicts the New Testament, which we would say has not been corrupted. We'll talk about that in next weeks. So yes, the Quran can be tested. Book of Mormon falls apart also on that same argument because it says it's a continuing revelation. There is no continuing revelation. Any other questions? <coughs> so you're saying that if you can prove that it has an ending, that by default those books are, that's how they, they are going to fall apart. New Testament has an ending. I'll show you. I'll try okay. to show you that. <coughs> so there is a implicit table of contents. All right, good. I hope that was, this was edifying, encouraging. Uh, so the next time your friend says, how do you know the Bible's from God? Because the Bible says so. <laughs> uh, but there's a deeper, longer, more interesting answer than that. Or not more interesting, but more complicated answer than that. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your words. And we do um, believe with all our might that uh, uh, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so help us to see that your word is reliable, that it is solid, um, that it creates us, that gives life to us. Help us to, to revere it, to imbibe it, to eat it, to, to um, soak into it just like Jesus did. We pray in his name. Amen.